So we, we are uh, currently and have been for the past four sermons uh, in a sermon series that I've called Back to Work. What we've been doing is looking at the story of the people of Israel when they returned to the promised land after being conquered by a foreign nation and then carted off into slavery and exile. They returned to Palestine. You might be familiar with this story if you've been here. They returned to Palestine. The people had a task to accomplish, rebuild God's temple. That's the thing you need to do. And, and as we've seen, they'd ended up getting distracted from that mission and the work on the temple stopped. So we've been looking at uh, the, the prophecy, uh, uh, the, uh, the work of the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament uh, and, and the words that God spoke through him to the people to get them going again back on their mission. And in the four sermons we've looked at, the four oracles we've looked at, we've seen God both address the challenges that people have, but, but not let them stay where they are, right? He's, he's challenged them. He said, you know, how you feel is, is legitimate, but listen, it's, it's not it's not sufficient for you to say this is what keeps me off of doing mission. And we've drawn some connections, right? Because we have a rebuilding project to do uh, here at this church. And so as we look at that, the, the connections we've drawn with God's people, Israel, have been fairly instructive for us. And so in, in last week's sermon, I made the point that if we want to build optimism about this, this bright kingdom future, that I believe God has in store for Parkland, and I hope that uh, I've been able to, uh, even if I just say it enough that you believe it, that would be awesome. Um, But I hope that you really do believe that. But said that if we want to build optimism about that, then there's some things that we need to do to prepare the ground to enable God to work. Some of those things are individual things in our hearts, and some of them are things that we have to do together corporately. The point I made at the end was that if we want to move forward, we have to be willing to trust each other. And trust is this really massive and significant aspect of how we're going to move forward together. What I want to do today is is I want to take that point, the trust point, and I want to just expand it a little more. So we're actually going to jump out of the Old Testament, we're going to jump into the New Testament, and look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you don't, sidle up to the person next to you who does and say, hey, can I read over your shoulder? And then they'll give you your Bible afterwards. They'll give you their Bible afterwards. 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 15. Um, Here's how I'm describing this sermon. So the the Back to Work series, right, is sort of like um, the Star Wars universe, right? Episodes 1 through now 7. But then also, here's what's happening with the Star Wars universe. I'm such a Star Wars nerd. I love talking about this. Um, There's a movie coming out this, this year that is part of the Star Wars universe but isn't part of that story. You guys know about this? Is anybody coming to see it with me? Anyone? Anyone? Am I going by myself? Seriously? Okay. So um, it doesn't exist as part of the main story, but it lives in the Star Wars universe. That's this sermon, right? The main story of the Back to Work series is up here. This sermon lives in that universe, but doesn't sort of contribute to that. Ah, eh, you know. Okay. So what <laughs> Ask me afterwards. Okay, so let me, let me, because we've been in Haggai, let me just sort of give a really quick background to 2 Corinthians and what we're going to find here. Because if you just start reading this passage, it's kind of like, okay, that's weird. Um, so here's the deal. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Um, and to say that this church had been difficult to plant 
would be to understate the matter fairly significantly. Uh, the church at Corinth was a difficult church. They were in a difficult city. So the, the first problem was that there was just this incredible level of sin and unrighteousness, right, that they, that they were dealing with. Um, Corinth was a city that had all sorts of pagan gods and idols and everything. It was just crazy uh, world. If you read 1 Corinthians, some of the stuff in there, you're like, really? That's weird. Um, so Paul had a lot of work to do to sort of conform people to the image of the gospel. But and as if that wasn't enough, Paul also had to deal with some intense opposition to his ministry from inside the church, right? So the fact is that when we as human beings are confronted with the truth of our sin, and, and we have to repent and change, we don't like to be told that, right? We don't like to be told that we're wrong. We don't like to be told that we need to repent. And so some people, when confronted with those kinds of, of, of things, those kinds of messages, what they do is they shoot the messenger. And that's what's happening in Corinth, right? There's this, peop, this group of people who had made it their life's mission to undermine Paul's teaching, undermine his authority, because if they could discredit Paul, who was the planter of the church and the pastor, then they figured that they wouldn't have to listen to what he said. Right? Easy. So in other words, Paul was making them very uncomfortable. And instead of dealing with their discomfort appropriately, self-examination, repentance, and change, they just kind of wanted to make the problem go away. So Paul planted the church spent a bunch of time in the city, um, was working his trade there, spent a long time there, and, and then eventually he had to leave the city to continue on a journey to go and plant other churches. And then he came back to, uh, to um, the Palestine area. Uh, I don't have a map of the Mediterranean, but if I did, I'd show it to you, and it would be really exciting. Um, and, and so while he was back at his home base, he heard about some issues that were going on in the church. The stuff that he had already worked to address had come back. And so he wrote a letter to them, that's our first Corinthians, and, and was pretty strong in what he told the Corinthian church to do about the sinful people in their midst, to the point where at one point he says, cast that person out, right? Strong words. And he knew that when they got the letter, <laughs> they wouldn't like it very much, they would be very upset. So he planned to just kind of let it sit for a while, see what happens. He's about to go out on another missionary journey, and he would go out around then, and then on his way back at the end of that journey, he'd come through Corinth just to see if everything was okay. But when Paul sent that letter, something unexpected happened. The church read it and repented of their sin. They realized that they had been wrong. They dealt with the sin in their midst. Much to Paul's surprise. And he was so excited about this. He was so enthusiastic that he said, you know what? I'm going to change my plans. I am going to come to visit you in Corinth on my way out. And then again, I'm going to make two visits instead of just one visit. And it's going to be great for us. We're going to be able to, to hang out together. I'm going to be able to hear these stories that you have been telling. Um, somehow Paul communicated this to the people of Corinth. that They had an expectation that he would come, but... Before he could follow through, something happened. We have no idea what it was. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit to inspire that uh, story. And he had to change his itinerary again, go back to his original plan. Now he's only going once. Okay, so, so to summarize, he was going once, then he was going twice, then he was going once again. Okay, okay. Um, 
this kind of thing happens to us all the time. Right, like you make a plan to do something and then something comes up and you have to change your plans last minute, right? If this is something that happens every time you make a plan, maybe there's a character issue there. But generally speaking, this happens to all of us. We all have things like this occur in our lives. And most of the people at the church in Corinth, uh, probably, you know, they were like, oh, that's too bad that he won't be able to come, but, uh, you know, whatever. His change of plans didn't really affect their day-to-day life. They got over it. Well, we'll see him once anyway. But you remember those opponents I was talking about before? Those guys saw this a different way. And they got to thinking, and they said, you know, maybe, why would Paul change his plans like that? You know, maybe Paul hadn't told us the truth in the first place. Maybe he never had any intention to come at all. He was just telling us what we thought, what he thought we wanted to hear. Maybe, maybe Paul isn't actually trustworthy. See what happened there? So the people didn't like Paul already. They wanted to see the worst in him. And because that was their, their, their filter, they saw everything that Paul did and interpreted it through that filter and came up with a story to explain Paul's actions. And it was a story that ended up calling into question the strength of his character. For the purposes of our, of our time today, I'm going to call that a suspicious narrative. They came up with a suspicious narrative to explain Paul's actions. And so, in 2 Corinthians, Paul responds to his critics. He responds and tells them this is what's going on. And it's interesting because he doesn't actually focus as much on defending his position because, frankly, he knew that he was right anyway. And there's no point in entering into a battle of wits with an unarmed man. So, he, but what he needed to do was, was drill deeper down and reveal some of the kingdom principles that, that were causing upset and work with those. So that's what he's doing here. Okay, that, that's, that's what he's doing when we join this story here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul talks about how you know, he, he was so excited about their response to his previous letter. And in verse 15 he says, because I was sure of this, because I was sure that you would benefit from me coming twice, I wanted to come to you first before I went on my trip so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That's what he wanted to do. And then Paul addresses his opponents. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So, This is Paul's response. This is his way of addressing the issue that his critics have raised. So let me me make sure I'm on the the right parallel lines here with you. As we move through this, this sermon series together, I've begun with the baseline assumption. My baseline assumption is that God has a bright kingdom future. 
in store for us at Parkland. That that's the future that God has for us. Getting there is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard work. But because God is the one who works alongside us to accomplish his mission, we can do that work confidently and know that what we do isn't going to be wasted because God works to fulfill his ends. But there's more to Parkland's future than just putting in the work required. Part of it is showing up, right? You have to show up. But there's more to it because we're not just called to work, we're also called to work together. We're called to do the mission of the gospel together. God has called us to be a unified body that works as one to accomplish the mission to which he's called us. And there's another factor we need to consider here as well. We have an enemy, right? We have an enemy. His name is Satan, and his mission is to destroy the church of Jesus. That's his thing. We would be foolish not to remember that. When you think about it now, if you were the diabolical prince of darkness, you would probably come up with with a way that would make you do your work and be lazy, right? Because that seems to be something that Satan would want to do. And, And so what would happen is, if you wanted to destroy the church, you wouldn't wait until it got momentum, right? Because it's harder to stop a rock that's moving. So what he wants to do, actually, is to kill the thing before it gets going. And the way that he's going to do that, I need you to, to, to understand how important this is and how high the stakes are here. The way that he's going to do that is he's going to pull us apart from each other. He's going to try to prevent us from coming together, building relationships, growing community, and working together to accomplish the mission. If he can just get us to doubt each other's intentions, even just a little bit, then it might actually be enough to throw everything off balance and prevent us from moving forward. So Satan wants us to be like the church in Corinth was. That's what he wants. He wants us to be suspicious of one another. He wants us to evaluate each other's actions through that filter because he knows suspicious narratives destroy community. So the call and the challenge that that I'm going to put in front of you today is this. If we want to be kingdom people, if that's our desire, if we want to be kingdom people working on God's plan to see God's kingdom future come into being at Parkland, then we must absolutely develop this discipline to eliminate from our community these suspicious narratives. We need to not question the motives and intentions of people around us because that's the way that Satan comes in and drives a wedge of mistrust between us. That's my thesis statement for you today. Now, I don't know where this is at with you, but I would be lying to you if I said that this wasn't a problem for us, because it is. It's not a hugely widespread problem, but that's why I want to nip this in the bud, right? And I want to draw attention, your attention to the things that could compromise our ability to move forward together. This is one of those things. So, Let's break down this idea of of suspicious narratives for just a moment, and and some of this is just sort of social science psychology research, but um, at at their core, a suspicious narrative 
It's just a way to explain the actions or behaviors of the people around us. But that explanation begins with a fundamental belief in the bad intentions of the other person. It comes from a position of malice. Here's an example. Uh, Not from the church, because that's dangerous. Here's an example from life. Let's say, for example, that you are uh, driving along Highway 1 at your usual speed, which I'm sure is at the posted speed limit, because that's mine too. Um, What... (laughs) And and, and as you're driving along in the right-hand lane, uh, because that's the travel lane, um, someone all of a sudden cuts right in front of you and bails onto the exit, and you have to kind of slam on your brakes or swerve or something like that, and that person just with impunity, right in front of you and off. Okay, so what you've just experienced there is a data point. It's information. This is a factual thing that just happened. Someone just cut me off. That information, that data point, has no moral value attached to it. It is neither good nor evil. It is simply neutral. It just is. But, very few of us, praise God if you're like this, very few of us sit there and go, hmm, that fellow just cut me off. And just keep driving, right? Like that's, that's, not, that's not how we respond to that. Because before you even know it, your brain has moved from this, this just taking in the data to then interpreting the data. Maybe I'm the only one who does this, but the, the interpretation that I tend to apply to that person's actions isn't entirely charitable. My first thought isn't, oh, I hope everything's all right, Right? My first thought, learn how to drive, you know, like, like that's, that's the first thing. But, I mean, the thing is, all I have to go on is what I've seen. That's it, that's all I have to go on. All I have is the fact that someone suddenly changed lanes. I don't know why. I just know that it happened. There could be a lot of different explanations. But you know what? None of that matters to me in that moment, right? Because it makes me feel better, right? And every, every possible charitable explanation, of which there are many, just flies out the window of my mind, and I reject any notion that that person had any intention other than to be an incompetent driver. That's a suspicious narrative, right? We don't just do it in our cars. We do it everywhere. We do it at home. You do it with your spouse sometimes, maybe. You do it with your kids. You do it with your friends, You do it of politicians, you do it, you know, you do it at church, too. So if you're here and and, and you walk by someone who's your friend and and they don't say hello to you, the first thing that goes through your mind isn't, oh, maybe they just didn't see me. Oh, maybe they're having a bad day, right? Like, the first thing that tends to come to your mind is, a jerk didn't say hello to me, right? Like, it doesn't happen here, I know, but, but it happens at other churches, so if we want to conquer this thing, I need, to, I need you to sort of process this one very, very critical piece of information that unlocks everything here. It's the key to success in life and everything else. Ooh, that sounds great, right? Um, here's the thing. You can't ever know what someone else is thinking. You can't. It's not possible. You think you can't. 
If you've known someone for a long time, you think, oh, this is what they're thinking, but you don't actually know. Suspicious narratives come when we believe we know what that other person is thinking. The thing is, it may very well be that the person who didn't say hello to us intended to snub us. It may very well be that the driver of that vehicle is an incompetent person who will eventually wrap said car around a telephone pole. It might be. It might be. But it might not be. And unless you know absolutely factually what that person was thinking, there always has to be room in your mind for another explanation. Always. So, it's a discipline, right? So, you don't know you're doing it. So, here's what we need to to understand. You need to analyze your thought process. I need to do this, you need to do this, if we're going to fix this, okay? The next time you find yourself creating one of these suspicious narratives, the discipline is to stop your brain and just ask a really simple question. Is there any other possible explanation for this? Is there any other way I can see this? And because the answer to that question is always yes, you quickly realize that adopting a suspicious narrative actually is a choice that you make. We feel like we have to do these things. Like, I have, I, how, there's no other way that I can see this. This is the only way I can see this. They meant this to me, but that's a choice. And we could choose a different way. So the solution to the problem of, of, of this suspicious narrative thing is to make another choice. Yes, it's hard. That's the call of the kingdom. If we want to be kingdom people, if we want to give God an avenue for kingdom work, then we have to choose to believe the best about one another. To start with that baseline assumption, not the worst. And not even ambivalence, right? We believe the best about one another. When we do that, these suspicious narratives kind of start to fizzle away around us. So that's all well and good, right? Um, but I want this to be more than just a self-help, hold hands, sing kumbaya, everybody be nice to each other kind of thing, right? Let's just treat each other nicely. No, it's, 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 not, it's not that, right? Yeah, it would be nice if everybody was nice to each other, but that's not the point of this, right? And, and the fact is that this is hard work, and it's not easy to rewire your instinctive reactions and choose a new path. So you might think to yourself, like, is this actually worth it? What are we actually, like, you know what? Yeah, nice to each other, that's fine. But, but what are we actually giving up here? Is there really anything at stake? And, and the fact is that there is. And that's what Paul talks about in this letter to the Corinthians. So there's really, there, there's, he highlights here two really significant ways that suspicious narratives undermine our ability to build kingdom. Because they do. This isn't just being nice. This is undermining kingdom. So here's the first one. When we are suspicious of each other, when we create suspicious narratives, it is impossible to listen to each other's stories. You can't hear a story that another person wants to tell if you've already written that story for them. And you know what? It is so much more difficult to judge a person's actions uncharitably 
when you know their story. When you hear about people's journey, when you hear about the pain that they've gone through, when you hear about the successes that they've had, when you hear about their, their fears, when you hear about their passions, you know, suddenly it's a lot easier to respond to them with compassion and with grace. So is it, is it any wonder that Satan would want us not to do that? Like that, that makes sense, right? Does it surprise us that he wants us to close our ears to one another, la, 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 and, and, and judge each other based on perceptions and not facts? And that's the idea that Paul hits on here in the first part of his response in verses 15 to 16. Um, he, he tells them that, that he wants to come and visit. This is my intention. I'm telling you my intention was to come and visit you. And then he asks these rhetorical questions in verse 17. He says, was I vacillating? when I wanted to do this. If you have the NIV, it will say something like, was I being fickle when I wanted to do this? And that, that's both are, are excellent ways to kind of carry the, the emphasis of that word. Was I vacillating? Was I being fickle? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. Here's what Paul is saying. You know me. You know my story. I lived I worked among you. You saw me fight hard for the gospel. You saw the work that I put in. Am I the kind of person who would be fickle? Am I the kind of person who uses doublespeak? Am I the kind of person who says one thing out of one side of his mouth and out of the other? Corinthians, look at my life and say, is this something that I would actually do? Do I make my decisions according to the flesh? And according to the flesh means acting in a way that's based only on a whim. And whatever you feel at that particular moment, man, that's what you do. With no thought given to whether or not the action is even possible or who it will affect or any of those things. I want to do this, therefore I will do this, right? Acting according to the flesh also implies a willingness to renege on our decisions when they become inconvenient without really thinking that other people might also be affected. In other words, acting according to the flesh means that we're making decisions based according to the measure of our own personal benefit. The only thing that matters is us. And Paul says to them, am I that guy? The way that Paul structures the Greek here is that the answer, the expected answer to these rhetorical questions is no. No, of course you're not like that, Paul. Nobody who knew Paul would ever assume that he wasn't a man of his word. Nobody who knew him would do that. Nobody who knew Paul would ever accuse him of putting his own comfort ahead of the benefit of the gospel. And if you question that, read the book of Acts. Of course, now, of course. Suspicious narratives, right? Even when it, it, we read a suspicious narrative and someone says, you know that's not true. You know that this is, uh, these were my intentions. So suspicious narrative goes one step further and says, oh yeah? Well, easy for you to say that now that I caught you, right? Oh sure, you say that now. Oh yeah, it wasn't your intention, right? And, and so that's why Paul just gets even more emphatic about this in, in verse 17. He says, as, or in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. 
The strength of this sentence is something that we need to understand. Paul here is making an oath. He is invoking the name of God as witness to what he's saying. The modern day equivalent would be to say, I swear to God that I am not lying. Funny, hey, how that, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that we feel uncomfortable saying as Christians, and yet here's Paul just like jumping right into that, you know? I could preach a sermon on that maybe another time. Um, ultimately, here's what Paul knows. He knows that the people who are reading his letter will decide whether he's trustworthy. They're going to make this decision, but he wants to make sure that they understand that their decision, if they make it, would be the incorrect one. So, okay, the next time that you find yourself creating a suspicious narrative about someone else. It's not just, is there another way to see this? The next question is, what do I know about this person? What do I know about this person's story? And if the answer is nothing, then you can probably figure out what the next action step would be, right? Once you think about someone's story, you have a better basis for interpreting their actions. And and, and hear me carefully when I say this, that, that sometimes knowing someone's story will allow you to interpret their actions and behavior with more compassion and more grace. But this is the other part of community. Sometimes knowing someone's story actually enables you to challenge that person to change in a way that's meaningful and prevent them from going down a path of sin. In my work as a pastor, I've worked with so many young men who are addicted to pornography. And if the statistics are right, then a good percentage of the men in this room are addicted to pornography. And because I know their story, I'm able to challenge them in certain things, in ways that I wouldn't challenge other people who didn't have that issue. Because the expectation I have of them for the purity of their heart and mind is a far higher bar. But knowing their story lets me understand where that bar is and when I need to challenge them. So it's not always that we show each other more grace. Sometimes we challenge each other more. Both of those things build community. Both of those things do that. Both of those things give us the tools that we need to move forward towards the fulfillment of God's kingdom plan. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you something. I'm gonna invite you to do something extremely specific, okay? If you have the courage to do this. This week, I want you to find someone in the Parkland community. If, you, if this is your home church, I want you to find someone in the Parkland community and ask them to tell you their story. Maybe ask them out for lunch today after church. But this is, this is the, the, the discipline that I would like for us to develop and say, so tell me, tell me about you. Because what's your favorite topic? You, right? So tell me about you. And, and it would be even better if the person that you asked to share their story is someone you've built a suspicious narrative around at some point in your time here. And it would be even better if you started off that conversation with this person by saying to them, listen, um, I want to tell you that I have been guilty of building a narrative of suspicion around you. 
I just want to be straight with you and tell you that that's what I've done. And, and it's caused me to make judgments about your character that I'm not sure are true. And so I want to ask you, first of all, for your forgiveness. And then I want to invite you to tell me your story so that I can understand you better. Is that difficult? Oh, yes, it is. Does it require taking risks and being vulnerable? Absolutely. But how important is it for us to move into God's kingdom future? How important is that? If it is critically important, which it is, then these are the kinds of things that we need to do to move forward. So suspicious narratives um, destroy community because they don't let us hear each other's stories. There's a second way that suspicious narratives destroy community. Because when we are suspicious of each other, we actually don't let God tell his story. We are part, at this stage in history, of a, of a massive, sweeping story that God has been telling ever since the beginning of human history. And he's telling that story throughout history, all the way from the beginning to the very end. And that story is one of sacrificial love, of unmerited favor, of redemption, of forgiveness, of transformation and change. And it's the story that our hearts long for. Every piece of popular culture that has any sort of impact in the world has at its core the gospel message. The battle between good and evil. The self-sacrificial efforts of those who are on the side of good to vanquish evil. The eventual triumph of evil and the restoration of things to good. Every story has that at its core because we crave that story so deeply. God's writing that big story. God is also writing that story of redemption on, on a smaller level in each of our hearts. Every person who follows Jesus, who's committed to follow him, carries with them the story of how God has, has done that work of redemption in them. Every person has that. You know, some of the stories are incredibly difficult. Some of them are full of twists and turns and, and you wouldn't know that it would have turned out this way. But it doesn't matter how interesting your story is. What matters is that God is telling it in you. But here's the thing. Each of our stories is different, right? God is so creative. He, he customizes each of our stories to fit exactly into who we are and into what part of the bigger story he intends to tell through us, right? And because this is true, it is impossible, impossible for us to know with certainty how God is going to tell his story in anyone's life but our own. What God is doing in the person beside you is not the same as what God is doing in you. But, but then God does this, and, and he calls all of these people who are having these different journeys and different stories, and he says, you know what? Let's all get together and live in community and build relationships, and all of our stories can intersect with each other, and won't that be fun, right? And you kind of look at that and go, that's crazy. So it's a good thing that God is really smart and can balance all those things. Here's the problem, though. We believe that our personal story is the most important story that God is telling. 
Everyone else is just sort of um, uh, supporting actors, right? Everyone else's story just serves to support our story, right? And so when someone lets us down, when someone does something that we don't understand, um, creating that suspicious narrative is the way that we keep ourselves front and center because a suspicious narrative is about, I'm better than you. That's what it says. It says, I'm better than you. We think it all the time. We wouldn't say it, it, but that's what we think. And that's what Paul's opponents in Corinth were doing. Paul says, I'm going to come and visit you twice. And he only came and visited them once. And they were disappointed, and the only explanation they considered was that Paul had some character defect. How could Paul let us down by not coming and visiting us? I'm the center of the story. I'm the, you know. They didn't understand Paul's choice. And here's what they did. They made their understanding, their ability to comprehend Paul's choice, they made that the measure of whether or not it was a good choice. And because they couldn't understand, therefore, he made a bad choice. And in doing this, though, Paul, Paul's opponents put themselves in this dangerous position because they weren't letting God speak. So Paul says in verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Here's what Paul is saying. God is working on a plan that is so much bigger and more complex than we could ever imagine. And we have a role to play in this, yes, but the story is much bigger than us. What's more, God is always at work to tell his story, even when it doesn't look like it. That's what we've seen in Haggai, right? When the people of Israel came back to Jerusalem, they found the temple lying in ruins, pretty difficult at that moment to see the good end to God's story. God promised them many things. One of the things he promised was, there will always be a king from the line of David reigning over my people. But the people weren't even a sovereign nation anymore. They were subject to a greater nation. They didn't have governance. They weren't autonomous. They didn't have any of those things. How is it that God would keep his promise? Maybe he has just decided not to. But despite the fact that they couldn't see how God was going to do it, the people still trusted his ability to do it. And so they were obedient to him. And sure enough, God kept his promise. Paul says that, in, that, that Jesus is, um, sorry, I just lost my place here. Um, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. It's not health and wealth, prosperity. Ask for a pony and Jesus will give it to you but that Jesus has fulfilled everything that God has said. God sent his son, Jesus, who was born in the line of David to become not an earthly king who rules over a sovereign nation, but a heavenly king who rules and reigns over all of God's people across time and in every place. And because of what God has done in Jesus, our redemption is secured, not just for God's people Israel, but for all people. Sin and death have been defeated forever. And God's promises stand fulfilled. And in light of that, Paul says, all we can do is utter our amen to God 
for the purpose of his glory because we know he has done it and we haven't. God's plan for keeping his promise was much more spectacular than anyone could have anticipated given the evidence in front of them. And so when they didn't understand, they just had to trust in his character. And that's the lesson that Paul's opponents were missing. I don't understand why God would make it so that you wouldn't come here. Well, you don't have the whole story. So the question is simple. Do we trust God? Do we trust him to do his work? Do we believe that he is at work to bring about his kingdom? Do we believe that he is faithful? And if the answer is yes, which is the right answer, then we also have to believe that there will be times when we cannot understand what God is doing. Where we can't see it. And where we are just going to have to trust in his ability to follow through. If we believe that God is faithful, then we also believe that God has called together this group of people called Parkland Fellowship. And frankly, there used to be more people that God had called together in Parkland Fellowship. And you can ask me for the theological category I'm doing here. It doesn't matter how we got here. Here's where we are. And these are the people that God wants to use to move us into the bright kingdom future that he has. When we create suspicious narratives about each other, what we're saying is, God, why did you bring this person here? We're questioning his wisdom is what we're doing, right? We're saying, I don't understand your plan. I don't understand where this person is because I don't understand it's not a good plan. Not true. If we let God tell his story, then the things he will accomplish are things that we would never have possibly seen. And then when he does it, right, and we look back to this moment, we'll see that's God's work, not ours, and we will say amen. Um, very last thing on this quickly. The, the whole thesis statement that I've been pursuing here is that if we want to be kingdom people who see God's kingdom and future come, then we have to eliminate suspicious narratives. So we've seen how that works, right? And we've seen why it's important. Let me, let me just say one final thing in closing here. The truth is, suspicious narratives sometimes serve a useful purpose. Because they protect us from being hurt. If we only ever believed the best about every single other person on the planet, uh, you would have no money. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't. You would have nothing, because people do take advantage of of that. Some people have malicious intent. Some people do. And so I want to be careful to clarify that the call of the kingdom in our lives is to eliminate those suspicious narratives within the context of the Christian community. Living as kingdom people doesn't mean that we're never suspicious of anyone ever. It's just not wise. But that doesn't mean that the call to kingdom living is any easier because you know what the truth is? There may sometimes be people within the church who really do want to take advantage of our trust. There might end up being someone who comes to this church who's given the benefit of the doubt, and their intent is really malicious, and they cause hurt. That can happen. But the fact that someone may someday take advantage of our trust does not eliminate our call to extend it. Think about it. 
each of us has probably at some point in our life eaten something that's made us sick, right? I, I mean, I've done that uh, several times. One memorable time on our honeymoon. That was fun. But despite the fact that 14 years ago in Cuba, I ate something that made me sick, I have continued to eat food. Right? Why? Because I need food to eat, to, to, to live. And not eating is not an option. I could eat less, yes, but not eating is not an option. And I would suggest to you this morning that for those who follow Jesus and live according to his kingdom, for those of us who are called to be part of God's community at Parkland Fellowship, then the need to extend trust and to believe the best about one another is as critical to our life as eating food is to our physical health. Not extending trust is not an option. No matter how much work we do to convince ourselves that it is. So here's the thing. We have a mission to accomplish. Listen to me very carefully. Today in this city, there will be people who die and spend eternity separated from Jesus in hell. Debbie Downer, that's the reality. Because they rejected the message of Jesus. For some people, that was a conscious choice. They were hard-hearted. They rejected the gospel. But others spend eternity separated from Jesus because they've never had a chance to hear it. That's a terrible tragedy. We, we can't present the gospel to every person. We can't do that, right? And that's not Jesus' expectation for us. But the bigger tragedy, honestly, guys, the bigger tragedy would be this. If the reason that someone didn't hear the gospel was because we were too busy being suspicious of each other to actually go and proclaim the truth of Jesus that would be a bigger tragedy. So let's commit to one another today that we are going to make a different choice. We are going to make a kingdom choice. And we are going to trust one another. And if that's our commitment, then we are one step closer to seeing this happen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us. And, and in this time, I, I challenged you earlier, and I mean it, to find someone and hear their story. And as we pray, the Holy Spirit's gonna bring someone to your mind and that's the person that you need to get in touch with, okay? So, so let me pray. Let's pray together about this. Father, we, we, first of all, declare that we trust you. That we believe that you are true, that your character is true, that your word is true, that everything you say is true. Because we believe that, God, we believe in the story that you're telling, the redemptive narrative that you are telling in history through the person and work of Jesus. And we believe that Jesus is truth. And we believe that you are calling us to live together in community. That you are calling us to build relationships with one another. That you are calling us to do the very, very difficult and challenging work. of bringing each other into our orbit. And each of us has a different capacity for that. Some of us can, can just be friends with everybody and love it, and some of us really struggle with that. But God, for each of us here, there is a place that we need to take up in your kingdom and to live 
among the community of your people because that's the way that you've decided this is gonna go. God, as your people at Parkland, we confess to you today that we have not always been good at believing the best for one another. We have not always been good at trusting each other. And because that's true, God, we have created suspicious narratives about one another. And so this morning, this morning, God, we we ask Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus and the power of his might that you would break those things that stand between us. That you would break the hold, the foothold, however small it is that Satan has in our lives and in our midst. And we declare in this place today that there is no space for the work of our enemy. And in Jesus' name, we declare that this is a place of safety and freedom, a place where Satan cannot come. That from this point forward, our minds are closed to his intervention. Our ears are closed to his whispers. That he will find no fertile ground among us to do his work. Because we are committed, Jesus, to see your work be done. And God, I pray for my friends this morning that some, some are sitting here and are wrestling deeply with this and they know, they know that there is something that they need to do. And so this morning, God, with power and conviction, would you work and move and compel us? And God, if we're the recipient of one of those conversations, God, we, we choose not to take offense. And we choose to see things from your perspective, to keep short accounts with each other, to make peace with one another, and to work together to see your kingdom and your glory and your power come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the ability to see transformation. And may it be said in this city and in this region that Jesus does his work through the people of Parkland. That this is a place where you can be found. Give us the strength and courage that we need to move forward from this place. Do the things you ask us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.